as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the goals that we say we have in life, maybe the goal we have in life, is to know Jesus more, to know Jesus more. If, you've been, if you're a real child of God, if you're a true born-again Christian, you know that, that Christianity is not a matter of keeping rules or just believing certain things or having a certain worldview or whatever it might be, but Christianity is actually a relationship with a living person, that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so growing as a Christian would obviously mean coming to know that person, Jesus, better. But how do we do that? It's kind of a big question, but how, how should we attempt to do that? It might not be as simple as you think because knowing Jesus is in some ways going to very necessarily be different than knowing other people and how we get to know other people better. Getting to know Jesus better is going to be different. Jesus, for instance, is not here with us today in bodily form. So we can't invite Jesus out to a restaurant for lunch after the service. We can't have a chat with Jesus in the same way we would talk to one another. We can certainly talk with Jesus through prayer anytime we wish to, which is an incredible blessing. But when we do that, he doesn't typically talk back to us in a way that we can hear with our ears. He may bring thoughts or impressions into our minds and hearts through the Holy Spirit. He may lead us to recall passages, words of his from the Bible, again, with the Holy Spirit being involved in that. He may even give us a sense of comfort or a sense of joy or a sense of conviction, or he may uh, just surround us with thoughts and impressions of his holiness and his love, and Jesus does that to us and for us from time to time. And yes, these are actually ways that we get to know him better, but Let's not underestimate the value of what is probably the most common and accessible way of getting to know Jesus Christ better, which is encountering him in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, you might say, okay, that, that sounds good, uh, but I, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, I know I'm supposed to read the Gospels, but how... how is it possible to get to know somebody in any kind of a personal or intimate way by reading a book that's 2,000 years old, right? I mean, that seems so indirect. I know that I can learn a lot about Jesus that way, you know, kind of like I could learn a lot of, by reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King or, or, or Gandhi. I, you know, I could, I, I could learn a lot about the person, but I could never get to know the person. And I've been told by preachers again and again that there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. So, how do I experience the difference? Can I really come to know Jesus in a close, intimate relationship by reading a book that was written 20 centuries ago? That's a good question. Can you? And if so, how? Let's, let's ask that. How, well, first of all, how can you tell if, if you're getting to know somebody? I mean, you're really getting to know somebody in an intimate way personal way? What are some of the signs? What are some of the measurements or indicators that you are in a close relationship and you really begin to know the person? I think that one measure of this is that you begin to know how the person responds and reacts under different circumstances, right? When they, when they come across a certain type of issue in life, how are they going to respond? If you know somebody, you kind of know what's going to happen, right? For instance, I could learn a lot about my wife by, by doing some research, I could find out how old she is, 
I could find out where she grew up. I could find out what college she went to. I could find out what jobs that she's had. I could stalk her Facebook account and see what kind of friends she keeps. I could, I could note that she's about five foot eight with blue eyes and brown hair. All these things I could find out pretty easily, kind of indirectly in some ways. But after 35 years of marriage, I know a lot more than that. And, and Dawn is not here right now because she's not feeling well, so she's actually watching this from home, and she can't stop me from this particular sermon illustration. Um, but I, I, know, I, I, know, I know what kind of jokes she laughs at and what kind of jokes she doesn't laugh at. I know how she reacts when it's sunny outside and it's 82 degrees, and I know how she reacts when it's windy outside and it's 23 degrees, and it's very different. I know the exact sound she makes when she's frustrated with something, and I can reproduce it pretty well. I can tell by the subtle changes in her walk, usually I can tell whether her back is hurting or not. These things are part of a close, experiential relationship that develops over time. And you might say, okay, I get that, but can we really know Jesus that way? Does, does Jesus even invite that kind of relationship? If, if, we know, if we know other people by seeing them in action, like I talked about, can we know Jesus that way? And if we can know Jesus that way, well, how, how could a 2,000-year-old book help us to get close to him like that? Well, believe it or not, it can. And I want, you, I want to remind you here that we have two incredible advantages when it comes to knowing Jesus like this. The first advantage is this, that God's Word is absolutely true. Everything in here is absolutely true in all of its parts. There are no errors here. Everything here is accurate and reliable, including what it says about Jesus in the Gospels. So we know we have the right information. The second thing we have going for us is what it says in Hebrews 13, 8, which is a verse that many of you have probably memorized. It simply goes like this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you realize what this means? Do you realize specifically what this means? It means this. It means that the Jesus that you are going to talk to in prayer tomorrow morning is the exact same Jesus that talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Same guy. The Jesus you reach out to for help and healing is the same exact Jesus that a woman in Luke chapter 8 reached out to after 12 years of shameful bleeding and uncleanness and was healed. Same Jesus. It means that the invitation that Jesus made in Matthew 11 to all who are weary and burdened and all who are thirsty for spiritual refreshing and all who are looking for true freedom, that invitation still stands today because he's the same exact Jesus. The Jesus of 30 AD is the same person who is alive and interacting with us today in 2024. There is absolutely no difference, no difference at all. And so if we can see him in action back then, I think we can be confident that he'll be the same Jesus for us today, that he will act and react in the same way now because he never changes. He never changes. And there is no better place to see Jesus in action than the book of Mark. Um, Mark doesn't get a lot of attention sometimes as a gospel because it's the shortest and simplest of, of the gospel accounts. 
It doesn't contain a lot of commentary. It doesn't contain a lot of extended teaching passages. There's some, but not a lot. Mostly what Mark does is he just moves from one event in Jesus' life to the next, just right between them, one after the other after the other, usually with only the word immediately between them. So Mark basically, he says, here's the life of Jesus. He puts you on a roller coaster next to Jesus, and he, and he just starts the thing going, and you're not allowed to get off. And, but because of that, we really get to see Jesus in action, in action. We see how he responds. We see what he does when he comes into certain situations. And what I want to do over the next four or five weeks with you as we move into the season of Palm Sunday and Easter eventually is I want to look at some selected passages in the book of Mark And through these passages, I want to try to have really a kind of encounter with Jesus each week. And in doing this, in seeing how he reacts in a particular situation, I want to get to know Jesus better. Not just the Jesus of 2,000 years ago, but the Jesus of today, who is, after all, the same exact person, and he hasn't changed a bit. So our first passage, our first encounter is going to happen in Mark chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there, you can turn there now. Mark 3, we're just going to read the first six verses says this. He's probably in the town of Capernaum here in Galilee. And it says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, we're going to find out later on, that's the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, what does Jesus encounter in these verses? Well, he certainly encounters a broken, hurting person, right? He encounters this man with a withered hand. But you can probably tell that Mark's emphasis here is not so much on Jesus' interactions with this man as it is on his interactions with the Pharisees and the leaders of this local synagogue that he's in. And what he encounters there is what you might call cold religion. Cold religion. And in response to this cold religion, Jesus feels two emotions. You can see them right there in verse 5. He feels anger and grief. Anger and grief. So let's explore this a little bit in the time we have left, and and maybe it'll help us get to know Jesus better, the Jesus that we interact with today. First of all, what is this cold religion, and what part of it is making Jesus so mad? By the way, here in verse 5, the the word translated anger is a seething anger that is getting ready to boil over. So Jesus is is not happy here. He is extremely angry, feels very strongly about this situation. Now, we know this is not the only time in the Gospels that Jesus gets angry, right? You might not picture Jesus angry a whole lot, but you know he gets angry a few times. Probably the most famous time that Jesus gets angry is later on when when he expels the money changers from the temple the week before his death. He gets angry there. He also gets angry in Matthew chapter 23. If you ever read through Matthew 23, you will see Jesus get very angry. He's angry with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, and he unloads on them with both barrels for most of that chapter. Why? 
Why? Well, because he says, you guys aren't just failing to enter the kingdom of God. You're keeping other people out of it. And if you look at all the times that Jesus gets really, really angry, what you find that they have in common is this. Jesus gets angry when people keep other people from coming to God for healing and salvation. That's when Jesus gets angry. And these leaders here are just doing that. They had a rule that says, and you see this happen other times in the Gospels, don't come for healing on the Sabbath day because it's not the time for healing. That's just wrong. And so whenever Jesus did a healing on the Sabbath day, he got in trouble with these people. That was their rule. They look at this hurting man, and rather than see a person, what they see is a test case. In fact, some people think, some, some commentators even think they might have brought the man in and seated him in the synagogue that day just for the purpose of trying to trap Jesus. But this man does not need to become a specimen for some sort of religious experiment. This man's need is not to become a trap or, or bait for a trap so they can catch a person they think is a false teacher. No, what this man needs is help. He's hurting. He's disabled. His hand is hanging useless and deformed. But somehow, whatever religion the Pharisees have bought into here actually blinds them from seeing that need. It's tragic. Now, if Jesus never changes, that means that the Jesus that we deal with today also gets angry. And he gets angry at the same stuff. He gets angry when barriers are put up that keep people from coming to him, when the door of heaven is slammed in the face of people so they can't have a chance to believe. That makes Jesus angry today. And of course, this leads us to ask ourselves, hopefully, two questions. The first one is, am I somehow putting up barriers that make it difficult for people to come to Jesus? Am I putting up those barriers? Now, for the Pharisees, it's kind of obvious what they were doing, right? They have this rule, you can't come get healed on the Sabbath, which is a ridiculous misinterpretation of the law that we'll look at in a few minutes. But I think for us, the barriers are a little more subtle, and they come in different places. This man with a withered hand, by the way, in order to be healed, he was going to need to take a step of faith, kind of a scary step of faith. And we, you know, it seems like a small little step for us, but it might have been a little bit bigger for him because what he had to do, he was going to have to stand front and center in the middle of a synagogue service that had suddenly become very tense. And he was going to have to stretch out the deformed part of his body for everyone to see. So, his first alliance the kind of a church, and are we the kinds of Christians individually with whom people can stretch out their hand and stretch out their brokenness? Are we the kind of people with whom others will have the courage to take a step of faith and reveal their brokenness like this man had to do? Does my conversation, my attitude, even my body language does it convey kindness, openness, and forgiveness? Or does it communicate disapproval or condemnation? Do my social media posts give the impression that I am a person of mercy and grace or a person of anger and fault-finding and criticism? Do I rush from one thing to another in such a way that people are afraid to interrupt me or do I take the time to be with people? Is this a church 
where people feel like they can fit in even if they've got issues and scars? Or do we make them feel like they need to clean up their act before they can come in and be part of this family? Then there's the related question. Since Jesus gets angry when people get locked out of God's salvation and healing, what about me? Does it make me angry? Because I think it should. Does it make me genuinely angry to see a hurting person turned away from Jesus for some reason? Angry enough maybe even to point it out to somebody or to do something about it or to make a fuss. If you see that happening, I hope you'll do something about it. Because Jesus wants people to come to him. Brothers and sisters, this is part of who Jesus is. As you get to know him, as you see him in action, you find out what makes him tick, and part of what makes him tick is what makes him angry. And when cold religion, in whatever form it takes, keeps people away from Jesus, he is mad as a hornet. But Jesus feels more than just righteous indignation here. He's more than angry. He's also, it says, moved with grief. He's moved with grief. He's, he's heartbroken. Jesus, at the same time he's mad, is heartbroken, certainly for this man who needs to be healed, but also for the Pharisees themselves whose hardness of heart is keeping them from trusting in him for salvation, ultimately. Think about it. Jesus could have gone around these fellows easily, right? What he could have, Jesus could have, he could have parked himself at the front of the synagogue, he could have met this guy at the front door, and he could have said, look, I know you've got this withered hand situation going on. I, you've, probably been, you've probably had it for how long? Years, decades, a long time? Listen, can, can you live with it for just one more day? And then what will happen is I'll meet you here on the steps of the synagogue tomorrow and we'll get this thing taken care of. But let's not make a fuss today because we don't want to interrupt the worship service. We don't want to make anybody mad. Jesus could have done that and I'm sure the guy would have gone for it. And could Jesus have healed him? Absolutely. But that's not all that Jesus is after. Jesus wants the healing, but Jesus wants more than the healing. He's after the hearts of the religious leaders as well. He wants that too. He wants to deliver them from the cold religion that is destroying their souls. So it might be worth, worth asking, how, how did this happen? How did their religion grow cold in the first place? Since if we find out what happened to them, it might help us to avoid the same fate. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, the scribes and the Pharisees, these people that we hear about so often in the Gospels, these, these scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were part of a long-standing tradition that went all the way back to Ezra the scribe. So you can read the book of Ezra. This is about 450 years before these events. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets around them, you will find that the people, of course, went to Babylon in, in captivity. The nation of Judah went to Babylon because of their sin. They were brought back to the land after 70 years. They came back. They rebuilt the temple and all that. But when they came back to the land, in, in large measure, they were broken. They were repentant. And they were particularly convicted about not having obeyed the law of God as contained in the Torah in the Old Testament. And when they heard the law read to them, they got convicted. When they heard the law read to them, they repented, and many of them turned to God. And they took some very radical steps of obedience in response to hearing God's law preached to them and shared with them. And so what happened was that there, there grew a high level of respect here for God's law, for copying it accurately, for knowing it backwards and forwards for memorizing it, for obeying it to the best of their abilities. But here's what happened. Over time, what happened is that these men became experts in the law. 
And as these men became experts in the law, they became so obsessed with studying its details that they lost track of its purpose. You see, the Jewish law was never just a set of rules. That's not what it was. It was was so much more than that. It was also a blueprint for the character of God. That's why God starts out the Ten Commandments with, I am the Lord your God. And it's why throughout the law, many, many, many times after you will see a particular law, a particular rule there in Exodus or Leviticus or somewhere, you'll see God then say, I am the Lord your God. Do this, I am the Lord your God. Don't do this, I am the Lord your God. Over and over again, he's saying, he's saying this is the kind of God I am, and so this is the kind of people you need to be since I am your God. And the point of observing my law is not to see how good a score you can get and observing it and then compare it with your neighbor's score. That's not the point. The point is to know me and to become more like me. And then when you realize that can't happen, that you can't perfectly keep the law, the point is to fall on your knees and come to me for mercy and forgiveness because that's the kind of God I am. It says it right there in the law. I am merciful and compassionate. I am slow to anger. I am, I am abounding in steadfast love and I can forgive you. But instead of turning to God, what happened was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to turn back to the law itself, back into the words on the page. And they thought, we can do this. This is doable. So they studied the law, and they memorized the law, and they wrote commentaries on the law, and they added things to the law, and they were building fences around fences around the law to keep themselves from breaking it. And what happened was the better they knew the law, the more proud and self-righteous they became. And so the law became not what it was supposed to be, which was a tool to convict them of their sin, but tragically it became a way for them to justify themselves. And anyone who tries to justify himself will never come to God for help or salvation. This, by the way, can happen to Christian leaders. You know what? The Bible is such a beautiful and rich and intricate and amazing book. It is such a wealth of knowledge. Studying the Bible can be fun. It can be so rewarding. It can be so awesome. But you know what? Because it's so interesting, it can become for some people a purely academic exercise because it's an interesting one. But when that happens, what happens is we no longer come under its authority because we consider ourselves to be the authority on it. And a lot of guys studying to be preachers end up getting what they call spiritual frostbite at seminary. Their faith grows cold even as their knowledge increases. What a tragedy that the future leaders of God's people could be falling into a form of cold religion, but it happens all the time. And it's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. And nowhere was their pride more evident and their coldness of heart more on display than in the way they treated the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was part of the law. Yes, God had given the people of Israel the Sabbath day as a gift. He said, here's one day a week when you can be free of the pressure to achieve, free of having to get ahead and and get everything done. Instead, you can spend the day resting and worshiping and just loving me and being loved by me. That's what God gave the people of Israel the Sabbath for. What an incredible blessing. But you know what happened was the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the Sabbath and they had turned it into a religious obstacle course. They were telling people how far they could walk, how many pounds they could legally carry, how large a piece of food they were allowed to chew, how much medical treatment they could legally receive, which, by the way, was just enough to keep you alive, but that's it. You weren't allowed to make any improvements until the next day. 
Now, none of this was in the original law of the Sabbath. And Jesus says to these guys, look, look what you've done. Look, you've become such a slave to your ridiculous man-made rules that you won't even allow yourself to do something good for another person on the Sabbath. Stop and think. How could that possibly reflect the character of God? What has happened to you people? Then he says, and it almost sounds over the top, but it's not. He says, is it legal on the Sabbath to give life or to kill? To save life or to kill? Why did he say that? Well, (laughs) the ironic thing is, while these guys would not let Jesus heal a man's hand on the Sabbath day, they themselves had a meeting on the Sabbath right after the service to plot to destroy Jesus. So I guess they didn't have a, they didn't have a rule about planning to murder people on the Sabbath. That was allowed. Although that sounds to me like a lot of work. Now, as we kind of land the plane and try to tie things together this morning, I just want to share with you, after hearing these things, um, two warnings and then one really awesome invitation. Okay, so two warnings and an invitation. Two warnings to help you be on your guard against this cold religion of the scribes and Pharisees, because it could happen to any of us and all of us, and, and one wonderful invitation that might keep you from being satisfied with cold religion. The first warning is this, and it's really just a tendency that we have. It is very easy, very easy for us to do what the Pharisees did and turn Bible reading into an academic exercise where the point is knowing more content, not knowing and being known by the author. I want, yeah, I want all of you to be immersed in the Word of God. I, I pray that. We need that as a fellowship, absolutely. But you need to ask yourself the question, am I doing this to become an authority, or am I doing this to come under authority? That's the difference. The second warning is related to the first, and that's to note this, that it's much easier to interact with a set of rules than to interact with a person. Rules are manageable, right? I can, I can define these rules, and I can, I can organize my life around them, and I can, I, can, I can fulfill them. I can do this. But if I deal with a person, that's too weird. That's, that's too difficult. It's too unpredictable. I'd rather deal with the rules. Now, I don't know what kind of rules you have set for yourself to determine how good a Christian you are or whether you get a gold star for the day. Maybe it's like this. If you, if you make it all the way to bedtime without a curse word coming out of your mouth, gold star, right? Chalk that one up. If you read three chapters of the Bible today, gold star, you know? If I pray for 12 minutes and 47 seconds, silver star, If I do 15 minutes, that's a gold star. Possibilities are endless, right? It might have to do with religious activities. It might have to do with staying away from particular sins that you're particularly prone to. Now, are these good things? Yeah, they're very good things. Of course it's good good to pray. It's good to read the Bible. It's good to not curse. Absolutely. Of course those are good things. But they are not the way to become righteous in God's sight. They're ways to draw closer to Jesus. There are ways to draw closer to Jesus. And if you get satisfied with the gold star, if that's your goal, then you'll never have to draw close to Jesus and have the, listen, the kind of heart-to-heart, soul-bearing, messy conversations that Jesus wants to have with you. Because the rules will satisfy you. If you really want to get to know Jesus, you're going to have to have some difficult, painful, heart-to-heart interaction with him. Now, 
Discipline is a good thing. Please do not hear me preaching to you that discipline is somehow a bad thing. No, discipline is a very good thing. It's even good to set goals for yourself when it comes to things like prayer and Bible reading or memorization or whatever. But listen, the discipline itself is never the goal. The discipline is not the goal. It's only a means to an end. It's only a pathway to meeting Jesus and inviting him to change you on the inside. Don't fall into the trap of using religious rules or measurements of external behavior to define your spirituality, or even worse, to make you acceptable to God. Because that is the ultimate trap, and people fall into it. And they forget that the only way to anyone ever be accepted by God is to be clothed in Jesus Christ, covered by his blood, shed for you on the cross, and that doesn't come by obeying any kind of rule. You only receive it by faith. Now, what have we learned about Jesus by seeing him in action this morning? Well, we've learned that he is allergic to cold religion. He gets angry when people are locked out of God's help, healing, and salvation. We've also learned that he's heartbroken when we take the word that is supposed to lead us into a deeper relationship with him and we treat it as an academic exercise or some kind of contest. But, and here's the good news. Here's the promise that I told you about, and I've been hinting at it for most of the message, so you may kind of know what it is already. But, and this is the reason, by the way, that Jesus is so heartbroken when we miss out here. And here's the promise. Every time you open up this book, Jesus is waiting to meet you here. Every time you open up this book, Jesus is waiting to meet you right here. As you open up your heart, And as you allow Jesus to speak to you through his word, you should feel yourself being drawn not just to the words on the page, but to him, to him. First for salvation because you need forgiveness. You need that gift. You need to be right with God, and only Jesus can give you that. But then, but then, you find that you keep going back. You keep going back to the meeting. This is where I meet Jesus. This is where you go. You keep going back to the meeting place of his word to meet with him again and again because you never stop seeking him. You never stop accepting the invitation to repent and to grow in this new life. So, when you open your Bible next, when you open your Bible this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow morning or whenever it is you open your Bible next, don't think, don't think, all right, how much of this do I have to get through? Don't think, how much of an expert can I become on this in order to impress God or somebody else or even myself? Think, no. Think, inside these pages, my Savior is waiting for me. He's waiting to meet with me, to spend time with me, to soften my heart, to receive me with love, to teach me about Himself, and to lead me into a greater experience of knowing and serving and loving Him. Will you do that tomorrow? Will you do that this afternoon? He's waiting to meet you. Let's pray.